This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Chapter 2. What is Social Theory? Christianity has often been accused of being too otherworldly in that it has failed to offer visible political, economic, and judicial and social programs for the world order. The teaching of Jesus that his kingdom is not of this world has been interpreted to mean that earthly life must merely be endured and that Christians cannot expect to accomplish lasting reform before the return of Christ. But does the New Testament really offer no guidance for shaping political or economic policy? Does it contain no judicial or social precepts that may be applied to today's societies? True, neither Jesus nor Paul spoke in detail of political or economic ideologies. But since both spoke out of a Jewish background and context, direct allusions may have been unnecessary. Christians must understand that their faith is rooted in Old Testament Judaism and that the Mosaic Covenant and Law, which contain highly specific political, economic, and social precepts, can give guidance even today. Larry Postan, 1990 Mr. Postan is not a well-known author, but his assessment of the theological problem is correct. His topic is the growth of Islam and the reasons for it. He is a professor of missions at Nyack College. He is concerned about the weakness of gospel efforts in the face of worldwide successes in direct evangelism by Islam. He sees a major flaw in contemporary Christian evangelism that is leaving it vulnerable to the counterclaims of Islam. The average age of each convert to Islam is 31. In contrast, the average age of Christian converts is 16. This is significant. As he says, quote, For every year the non-Christian grows older than 25, the odds increase exponentially against his or her ever becoming a Christian. End quote. What we need, he says, is an adult gospel. He lists five reasons why Westerners choose Islam over Christianity. The fourth is important for this chapter. Quote, fourth, Islam is practical. It is, concerned, it is considered a this-worldly religion in contrast to Christianity, which is perceived as abstract to the extreme. Muhammad left his followers a political, social, moral, and economic program founded on religious precepts. Jesus, however, is said to have advocated no such program. It is claimed that the New Testament is so preoccupied with his imminent return that it is impractical for modern life. End quote. I wrote in the preface that my concern is evangelism. The typical fundamentalist response is this. If your concern is with evangelism, why are you wasting your time writing about social theory? What has economics got to do with evangelism? That depends. If you are evangelizing children, not very much, at least not directly. But what if you are evangelizing adults? Then such things matter a great deal. If they do not matter on the front end of the gospel presentation, they matter on the back end when the person asks, Now what am I required by God to do? If the evangelist's answer is, Pass out gospel tracts, it is far too limited an answer. God requires a great deal more. Only for those adult Christians who want to continue to live as children does the message of 
contemporary pietism have a strong appeal. Sadly, their name is Legion. They have defined Christian evangelism too narrowly. They have defined it in terms of their immediate emotional needs, not in terms of the biblical doctrine of God's comprehensive redemption. They have not understood true biblical evangelism, personal regeneration leading to social transformation. To begin to understand biblical evangelism, we should begin with Moses' words to the generation that was about to conquer the land of Canaan. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I see, which I set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons, and thy sons' sons, especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. Deuteronomy 4, 5-10 Evangelism is comprehensive. It must produce positive fruits. These fruits are not merely personal. Like the Queen of Sheba who journeyed to Israel because of Solomon's legendary abilities as a civil judge, so are other non-believers expected to see and praise God's social laws because of their visible results. This view of evangelism is hated by the vast majority of those who call themselves Christians. It is ridiculed as if it were some sort of rejection of the Bible. Writes Peter Masters, heir of Spurgeon's pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, quote, Reconstructionists teach that the great commission of Christ to his disciples goes beyond the work of evangelism. In their view, it includes this quest for the social-political dominion of the world, the persuading of all nations to submit to the rule of Israel's ancient laws. At least he was kind enough and precise enough to use the word persuading rather than forcing, etc. Notice his phrase, quote, beyond the work of evangelism, end quote. Into this brief phrase is packed an entire worldview, the worldview of Christian pietism. Evangelism is narrow, he presumes. To discuss men's requirements to obey the laws set forth in the Old Testament is necessarily to discuss social transformation. These laws deal with all aspects of society. In Masters' view, all such discussions are peripheral to evangelism. If pursued in detail... They become obstructions to evangelism, he and all pietists believe. But social theory is only possible if men are willing to pursue such questions in great detail. This is why pietism, with its narrow definition of evangelism, is hostile to social theory. Defining social theory Social theory is more difficult to define than is eschatology. Social theory is the view that men adopt to explain how society operates, or better yet, how it holds together. It is the question of the nature of the social bond. 
Every social theory must offer answers to at least five fundamental questions. One, what provides legitimacy to any given institution or complex system of institutions? Two, what system of authority binds people and institutions together in their cooperative ventures? What do we mean by institution? Three, what are the rules and regulations of the social bond, and how are they discovered and applied to specific cases in history? Four, what are the sanctions that individuals and institutions legitimately bring against deviants and outsiders? Five, what is the view of time, continuity, that binds men and institutions to both the past and the future? Point five is the issue of eschatology. Man's past, present, and future are covenantally intertwined. Christianity has always affirmed the linearity of history, creation, fall, redemption, and the final judgment. Western Christianity, especially Puritanism, has at times also affirmed the possibility of progress within this linear temporal process. History can be linear upward. The widespread public acceptance in the West of the twin concepts of scientific progress and economic growth was closely related to the spread of Puritan postmillennial eschatology. It was a secularized version of this Puritan vision of progress that was adopted by Enlightenment humanism. Progress without God's sovereignty, authority, law, historical sanctions, or final judgment. The past was seen as being pregnant with the future. This humanist vision is now fading. Nisbet is probably correct regarding the cause of the late 20th century's loss of faith in progress. Quote, there is by now no single influence greater in negative impact upon the idea of progress than our far-flung and relentless jettisoning of the past. End quote. The humanists also fail to understand why disrespect for the past would lead to loss of faith in the present. We are all becoming part of the past. We too will be jettisoned by future generations. Our works and dreams will be cast out of future men's thinking. We will be consigned, as communist Leon Trotsky put it, to the ash can of history. So what kind of commitment to such future ingrates can modern man be expected to reveal? Very little. Millions of people today are increasingly ready to abort the future, as well as abort the yet unborn who would otherwise become the future. Western society has become increasingly present-oriented, with fateful consequences for Western culture. Present orientation is a denial of the very foundations of Western culture, respect for the past, and faith in the future. The Three Views of, history, of Society There are three, and only three, fundamental views of the underlying nature of the social bond. Each of them reflects a particular view of the cosmos, which in turn undergirds the particular view of society. These views are organicism, contractualism, and covenantalism. The first two have been dominant in Western philosophy and social thought. The third, being uniquely biblical, has been ignored. Organicism. This is by far the most widespread view in man's history, though not in the modern West. Society is viewed as an organism, just as the cosmos is, a growing thing that has the characteristic features, features of life. The model institution of the organic society is the family, which is closely associated with the physical birth, cultural and physical nurturing, and death. This organic view of society is often associated with the concept of a hierarchical chain of being that links God, 
man, and the cosmos. It is also associated with magic, and with magic's fundamental principle, as above, so below. Man supposedly can manipulate any aspect of the cosmos, macrocosm, by manipulating representative features, microcosm. The crudest manifestation of this philosophy is the voodoo doll. Philosophically, this view of society is associated with realism, an underlying metaphysical unity transcendent to mere individuals. Organicism is divided into two major historical streams, familism, medieval, and statism, Greco-Roman. Contractualism. This is the dominant view of the modern world, although its philosophical roots go back to the Middle Ages, e.g. William of Ockham. Society is based either on a hypothetical original contract among men in prehistoric times or a constitution of some kind. The primary model is the state, not the family, although in some modern social philosophies, the free market is the model. The familiar phrase associated with this outlook is the social contract. Men in the distant past voluntarily transfer their individuality individually held political sovereignty to the state, which now maintains social order. Each social institution is governed by the terms of an original contract, whether mythical or historical. The social bond is based exclusively on voluntary legal contracts, hypothetical or historical, among individuals. Philosophically, this view of society is associated with nominalism, the denial of any underlying metaphysical reality or transcendent social unity apart from the thoughts and decisions of individual men. Contractualism is divided into two major historical streams, individualism, right-wing enlightenment, and collectivism, left-wing enlightenment. The former is evolutionary in its view of society, the latter is more revolutionary. Covenantalism this is not a fusion of organicism and contractualism. It is a separate system. It views society as a complex system of legal bonds, with God as the ultimate enforcer of these covenants and contracts. There are only four covenants, personal, God and the individual, ecclesiastical, sacramental, familial, and civil. These final three are monopoly institutions founded directly under God's explicit sovereignty. Covenants alone are lawfully established by a self-maledictory oath under God. The oath-taker calls down God's wrath upon himself if he ever violates the stipulations, laws, of the covenant document. All other relationships are either personal, e.g. friendship, or contractual, e.g. a legal business arrangement. God is the final judge because he is the creator, and he brings his judgments in time and eternity in terms of his permanent ethical standards, i.e. biblical law. Covenantalism has developed no separate philosophical tradition in Western history for Christian philosophers, including those interested in society, prior to Cornelius Van Til, 1885-1988, virtually always adopted in the name of Christ some version of either realism or nominalism. The biblical covenant model is based on creationism, not realism or nominalism. This philosophy asserts an absolute separation of being between God and any aspect of the creation, the creator-creature distinction. This concept, so fundamental to Van Til's philosophy, 
categorically denies the existence of a chain of being linking God to the cosmos, realism. Creationism leads to providentialism, which affirms the absolute authority of God and his sovereign control over all things in history, i.e., his decree, thereby denying the autonomous power of man to name any aspect of the cosmos authoritatively, nominalism. Covenantalism is a separate philosophical system. Historical Sanctions and Millennial Eschatology As I hope to show in this book, there is more to social theory than eschatology. There are all five aspects of the social bond. A comprehensive study of social theory would have to include all five. I have decided, however, to limit my discussion primarily to millennial eschatology and sanctions, meaning the idea of sanctions in history, sanctions imposed by God and governed by specific moral and legal standards. I could also have discussed sovereignty, hierarchy, authority, and law, but the great dividing lines within Christianity today are associated with sanctions and the historical result of these sanctions, millennialism. Here is where the great debate occurs. Christians generally agree with each other on the idea of the sovereignty of God, although the Calvinists are the hardliners on this subject. The absolute sovereignty of God and the non-autonomy of man. Christians also agree that there must be hierarchies in life although they tend to adopt the family as their model rather than the church, since there is more agreement today regarding the proper structure of the family. The structure of the Christian family has changed many times in the past, but each era seems to think that the present structure is the biblical model. The churches do verbally agree that Christians must obey God's moral law, a concept left judicially and judiciously undefined. But why single out double out, historical sanctions and millennialism, because the debate over law would be too complex. Which laws? Natural laws? Old Testament laws? Which natural or Old Testament laws? How interpreted? How applied today? Few Christians have seriously thought about law and society in our era, and the 17th century debates over law, casuistry, have faded from most Christians' consciousness. They have no strong opinions regarding the proper legal, i.e. covenantal, foundation of society. They do have very strong opinions on God's historical sanctions and the millennium, and this has deeply affected their intuitively held views of society. Before exploring the question of sanctions and eschatology, however, we must first consider very briefly the question of law. A Question of Law Prior to the Newtonian intellectual revolution, all but a handful of Christians had adopted some version of medieval natural law theory, what we can call organic natural law theory, realism. This version of natural law was based on the medieval Roman Catholic concept of a chain of being linking God and man. This medieval theory's roots were in Stoic natural law theory, in turn derived from Greek, Greek speculative thought. The mind of man was seen as autonomous to some degree from God, the Bible, and the Church. Baptism, the celebration of the Mass, and Church law were needed to make fallen man whole again, but man's intellectual autonomy in rational affairs, e.g. geometry, was asserted. The laws of nature were seen as autonomous and open to accurate investigation by all mankind. Natural law and society was seen as essentially metaphysical, i.e., underlying all human relationships. 
The key philosophical assumption was the idea of shared being, meaning a real metaphysical link in a living, organic cosmos. The mathematical-mechanical rationality of Cartesianism and Newtonianism destroyed this organic worldview in the Protestant West. After Newton, Christians and non-Christians alike adopted a new version of natural law theory, what we can call mechanical natural law theory, nominalism. It rested on the hypothesis of a distant creator God so far removed from the creation that he intervenes only occasionally in order solely to keep the mechanical clock of creation operating smoothly. The mind of man was seen as autonomous from both biblical law and church law. What is crucial to man's scientific understanding is his knowledge of the mathematical structure of the universe. Steadily, social philosophers sought analogously rigorous relationships in human society. Natural law in society was seen as exclusively contractual, hence the conclusion, no social contract, no legitimacy. The underlying assumptions of this worldview did not survive Darwinism, a new impersonal organicism, in the late 19th century, and quantum physics, a new impersonal irrationalism, in the early 20th. Natural law theory in both forms prevented the development of a uniquely biblical social theory. The doctrine of the biblical covenant was missing, since one or more of its five points were denied. One, the absolute personal sovereignty of God over both nature and human history. Two, the hierarchical authority of all human institutions under God's limited, delegated sovereignty. Three, biblical law as authoritative in all civilizations. Four, God's historical sanctions, blessing and cursing, imposed in terms of his Bible-revealed law. And five, the development of history in response to the imposition of God's sanctions, though mitigated temporarily by his mercy. Point one is called Calvinism. Point two is called representative government. Points three and four are called theonomy. And point five is called postmillennialism. They are a package deal. Without all five, it is impossible to construct an exclusively and covenantally faithful biblical social theory. What I, ar- what I argue in this book is that law, historical sanctions, and eschatology are uniquely linked together in ways denied by virtually the whole of the modern church. God's stipulations, laws, God's historical sanctions, and God's kingdom triumph in history are a unit. This is not to deny that God's absolute predestinating sovereignty is what guarantees his kingdom's historical triumph, or that Christians, as members of God's church, are not God's kingdom representatives in history. But the great debate has come over the inextricable relationship between biblical law, God's historical sanctions, and cultural progress over time. Yet most modern covenant theologians expressly deny this connection. They also refuse to define covenant. This has been going on for four centuries. A question of sanctions. Quote, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. End quote. This is the opening paragraph of part one of the Communist Manifesto, 1848. The fact that Marx never did define class, i.e. hierarchy, in terms of his theoretical system, did not in the least hinder the growth of the communist movement. He clearly had a unified concept of sanctions and eschatology 
and it was this belief, above all, that motivated his disciples. Quote, Centralization of the means of production and socialization of labor at last reach a point where they become incompatible with their capitalist integument covering. This integument is burst asunder. The knell of capitalist private property sounds. The expropriators are expropriated. End quote. Marx was wrong. In 1989, the death knell of Marxist-Communist sounded. Except in Red China, and even in this case, it was only the application of military sanctions against unarmed students that gave Chinese communism a stay of execution. This was viewed by the whole non-communist world on satellite television, and Red China lost any claim to moral legitimacy. Lost legitimacy is very difficult to regain. Non-Chinese communism lost its moral legitimacy in a much less spectacular way. Communist producers of goods and services, held legally unaccountable to enslaved consumers for over 70 years, finally failed to deliver the goods. Communist economies all went bankrupt economically, but far more significantly went theoretically bankrupt. They lost their legitimacy because it had been based on a premise, on a promise of a better economic world to come. So utterly hopeless is communism as an economic system. The economist commented with characteristic English wit that not even Germans could make it work. While the implements of Russian nuclear sanctions are still growing in number, those sanctions, if ever applied, will not be Marxist, merely Russian. Marxism is dead. Its few remaining defenders are Western college professors, tenured upholders of lost causes. Any social philosophy that is dependent on college professors to keep it alive is already suffering from rigor mortis. This is not to say that Leninism is dead. Leninism is a theory of power, not a theory of economics. Its strategy, in Lenin's own words, is two steps forward and one step back. Mikhail Gorbachev is a Leninist, and a declared one at that. What he is throwing out is Marxian socialism, just as Lenin did with his new economic policy in 1921. For the sake of the Leninist cause, Gorbachev is abandoning Marxism, but he is not abandoning Leninism's power religion. What he now appears to be doing is substituting the strategy of the founder of the Italian Communist Party, Antonio Gramsci, who was Lenin's contemporary. Gramsci rejected the Marxist-Leninist ideal of a workers' revolution as his strategy for conquering the West. He designed a propaganda campaign promoting atheism and relativism as a means of subverting the then marginally Christian West. The question is, can Leninism as an ideology exist apart from socialism? Can it exist apart from Marx's goal of destroying the bourgeoisie? My answer is no. Marxism is a theory of final sanctions in history, of class revenge, of envy. It is a deeply religious worldview that proclaims both personal and corporate salvation through revolution, followed by the application of ruthless centralized power. It cannot coexist with a free market capitalist order. Thus, Gorbachev's tactic of abandoning Marx's socialism is in fact a strategy leading to the self-destruction of communism. Marxism is officially dead. Gorbachev has publicly buried it. Leninism, though well-armed militarily, is now dying. Power is not enough. Marxism-Leninism is far more than a philosophy of power. 
It is, in the words of Peter Drucker, quote, the promise of an everlasting society that achieves both social perfection and individual perfection, a society that establishes the earthly paradise. It was this belief in salvation by society that gave Marxism its tremendous appeal, end quote. Marxism is a power religion, but religion is supposed to heal man's wounds. Marxism has failed as a religion, and now it will be replaced as a worldwide ideological movement. It no longer fulfills its original role. The most successful secular religion in history has failed. Gramsci's Marxism is really not Marxism. It is merely socialist humanism, and socialist humanism is now out of favor, East and West. Fascism is alive and well, the government-business partnership, but Marxian socialism is dead. Gramsci left Soviet Russia, preferring a jail sentence in fascist Italy to a death sentence from Stalin. In this sense, Gorbachev is a true disciple of Gramsci. He prefers fascism to Stalinism. But unlike Gramsci, Gorbachev thinks he will run the prison, which is now under construction. This prison is the transnational New World Order. Covenantal Struggles Marx and Engels were close to the truth, close enough to create the most powerful secular religion in man's history. Society is indeed a history of struggles. Paraphrasing Marx and Engels, we can say, quote, The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of covenantal struggles. This conflict began with the serpent's tempting of Eve in the garden. It continues in our day. It will continue until the final judgment. There is a gigantic struggle in history between covenant keepers and covenant breakers. We know where this struggle is headed, toward the total defeat of covenant breakers at the end of time. Covenant breakers want one thing above all, to escape the negative sanctions of the final judgment. Modern humanism has denied the existence of such a final judgment. It has sought to transfer the very concept of final judgment into history. Social theories that are built on the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, are examples of this outlook. There are only historical sanctions, we are told, and these sanctions are imposed by either man or nature. Eschatology becomes immanentized, dragged out of heaven and into history exclusively. It is stripped of every trace of the transcendent. Covenant keepers, in contrast, assert the existence of sanctions beyond history, both personal, after death, and cosmic, end of time. But Christian thinking, for the most part, over many centuries, has concentrated only on these final sanctions. God's sanctions in history, both positive and negative, have been explained in terms of God's inscrutable will. They have been seen as essentially random from man's perspective. Amillennial theologian Meredith Klein writes, quote, And meanwhile it, the common grace order, must run its course within the uncertainties of the mutually conditioning principles of common grace and common curse, prosperity and adversity being experienced in a manner largely unpredictable because of the inscrutable sovereignty of the divine will that dispenses them in mysterious ways. Quote. This view of God's historical sanctions, random, has produced an operational alliance between covenant breakers and covenant keepers, Covenant breakers have sought to make all the meaningful sanctions exclusively historical and exclusively natural. This is an aspect of worshipping what Herbert Schlossberg calls the twin idols of mankind, 
idols of history, and idols of nature. Covenant keepers have not accepted this worldview in theory, but most have accepted it in practice. Random historical sanctions become the operational equivalent equivalent of no historical sanctions. This leaves humanism's sanctions as an effective monopoly in history. Furthermore, throughout most of man's history, these sanctions have been closely associated with the exercise of state power. Those who have affirmed meaningful sanctions only in history have sought and gained political power. Modern Christians, in contrast, have denied that God's predictable covenantal sanctions apply to history, and have also denied their legitimate enforcement by the covenant-keeping representatives of God. They have sought, first, to shun all political power, and second, to escape its effects. This leaves covenant-breakers in control of society by default. This covert alliance between humanists and pietists has led to the visible triumph of the power religion over the escape religion. The power religion and the escape religion are united in their determined opposition to the idea of God's covenant sanctions in history. Understandably, the defenders of humanist theocracy, the religion of autonomous man, are outraged by the message of biblical theocracy. Man, they insist, must rule in history whenever nature departs from her throne or is pushed off by man. Less recognized is the fact that the defenders of God's random historical sanctions have by default accepted the moral legitimacy of this humanist theocracy, at least in the form known as political pluralism, what I have called right-wing enlightenment political theory. There is no neutral cultural and social vacuum. Either covenant keepers will make and enforce the laws of society, or else covenant breakers will. There is no third alternative, long term. Modern political pluralism is merely a temporary ceasefire. One side or the other must eventually gain control. This will be the humanist side if covenant keepers retain their faith in the randomness of God's sanctions in history, for humanism is a consistent theology of man's sovereignty. Consistency wins, for it can mobilize the hearts and minds of men. The inconsistency and philosophy of despair of the classical civilization of antiquity could not withstand the consistency and eschatological vision of Christianity. For the past three centuries, however, the consistency and vision of humanism has overcome the inconsistency and lack of historical vision of Christianity. Today, with humanism in disarray, and Christianity in seemingly equal disarray, it is not clear from the available evidence which side will win, but one or the other will, unless a third contender appears. Christianity's problem is this. You cannot beat something with nothing. If we seek to persuade people to embrace our religion, we need to offer good reasons why. Guaranteed historical defeat is not one of them. A positive eschatology is important. A question of eschatology. Communism has served as the ultimate model of all humanistic social theories, consistent, comprehensive, life-changing, and life-absorbing. In its early days, it demanded the whole of men's lives. Communism has been able to demand this degree of sacrifice because it is a religion. Like all religions, it possesses an explicit eschatology. This millennial eschatology is optimistic, world-embracing, world-transforming, and exclusively this-worldly. It is a vision of victory. The Soviet Union remains militarily the best-armed nation on earth, 
but the nation's theoretical fundamentals are no longer seriously believed by its people or its intellectuals, as Solzhenitsyn has been telling the West ever since his deportation from the Soviet Union in 1974. Now this moral bankruptcy is visible to all, but communism's rulers have held unprecedented power. Communism is the incarnation of the power religion. Few scholars would deny the close relationship between communist eschatology and communist social theory. Few would deny the importance of communist eschatology in the rapid rise and then the geographical triumph of communism after 1917, a victory that only came to a halt at least for the moment in late 1989. Communist eschatology helped not only communism, it helped socialism in general. As Ludwig von Mises wrote in 1922, Nothing has helped the spread of socialist ideas more than this belief that socialism is inevitable. Even the opponents of socialism are, for the most part, bewitched by it. It takes the heart out of their resistance. What should also be recognized is the close connection between communist eschatology and the communist theory of historical sanctions. Again, citing Mises, From the theory of the class war, Marxians argue that the socialist order of society is the inevitable future of the human race. Eschatology and historical sanctions. The diabolical genius of Marx and Engels link them together self-consciously. The religion of Marxism, in this sense, as in others, is a perverse imitation of biblical covenantalism. Christianity. The three major Christian eschatological systems, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, have inescapable implications for the development of social theory. This fact was ignored for centuries by Christian theologians generally, and by the tiny handful of Christians who over the centuries have dealt at least peripherally with the question of social theory. The relationship between millennialism and social theory was not even discussed, let alone studied in depth. The topic in recent years has been considered sporadically and peripherally by a few Christian theologians only because of the appearance of the Christian Reconstruction Movement, which is self-consciously postmillennial and which has specialized in the study of social theory. Ironically, secular historians have in recent decades begun to understand that such relationships have existed in Western history. Why have Christian scholars paid little or no attention to this growing body of scholarly literature? First, they seldom keep up with academic literature outside their own narrow theological specialties. Second, the existence of such a relationship between eschatology and social theory raises many difficult personal questions regarding church membership, continued employment by Christian organizations, and relationships within Christian organizations. If a particular eschatology is true, and if it seems to lead to a particular theory about how society is required by God to be governed, then what should the local church do when its members or officers affirm the particular eschatology, but then deny its social implications? Even more painfully, what if the denomination specifically insists on eschatologic eschatological neutrality in the ordination of its officers. Third, it raises psychological questions. Quote, I believe in this eschatology. Must I also believe in that social theory if I am to remain theologically consistent? Can I even develop a Bible-based social theory that is consistent with my eschatology? End quote. These questions disturb amillennialists and premillennialists alike, for both groups systematically shun social theory. 
Above all, these questions disturb that handful of dispensational premillennialists who are also social activists. The problem of consistency. Christian responses have been mixed to Christian Reconstructionism's claim in favor of an explicitly biblical social theory. Some of these critics insist that the traditional categories of Stoic and medieval natural law theory are universally valid, and therefore constitute the only legitimate foundation of social theory in a post-resurrection world, a pluralist, humanist-dominated world. Others take the seemingly less controversial approach, professing ignorance, but implicitly proclaiming ignorance as universally binding. They proclaim a kind of spiritual agnosticism. They thereby deny the possibility of Christian social theory, let alone its necessity. For example, English Calvinist Baptist Errol Hulse writes, quote, Who among us is adequately equipped to know which political philosophy most accords with biblical principles? End quote. Implication? Certainly not the theonomists. That this same agnosticism can easily be applied to the doctrines of the Trinity, baptism, and church government never seems to occur to these agnostic critics. There is an implicit syllogism lurking here. Quote, Ignorism is bliss. Knowledge is power. Power is responsibility. Responsibility is terrifying. Let's stick with ignorance. End quote. This is the worldview of pietistic Anabaptism, but it is no longer restricted to Anabaptists. It is nearly universal in Christian circles, except when offset or heavily qualified by neutral natural law theory. It has produced an attitude hostile to all systemic, systematic discussions of a uniquely biblical social theory. Conclusion The three views of social theory, organicism, contractualism, and covenantalism, establish the limits of social theory. There is no fourth alternative. Christians must adopt one of these three approaches, either unconsciously or self-consciously. But there are many Christians who prefer not to make this decision. Let me remind them, no decision is still a decision. There is no neutrality. The possibility of devising a uniquely biblical social theory is denied by those who reject the continuing validity of the Old Testament case laws in New Testament times. At best, by adopting a Stoic medieval view of natural law theory, the Christian can make some contributions based on his knowledge of the Bible, but the resulting hybrid social theory will not be uniquely Christian. Natural law theory is judicially and morally unstable, even without Christianity's appended contributions. Instability has been the fate of natural law theory from the days of the Stoics. The mind of an autonomous man is in rebellion against God, the truth, and morality. Yet it cannot be trusted to formulate first principles or to remain logically consistent to them. It is not that natural law is in need of revision by Christian principles, it is that Christian principles are reliable, whereas natural law theory is a myth of Hellenistic Greek scholars who were seeking to invent universal moral principles in the midst of a collapsing social and political order in late Greek antiquity. It was a system of elitist logic designed for men willing to abandon politics altogether in order to submit to a universal empire. Natural law theory was a makeshift affair from the beginning, a substitute for the defunct moral order of the defeated Greek polis. It is just one more example of secular humanism in action. Its only major victory was achieved when late medieval Christian philosophers, 
breathed new life into it by arguing that it was consistent with Christianity. It suffered a major defeat by Kant in the late 18th century. Darwin then proclaimed autonomous nature's randomly changing responses to randomly changing environmental forces as the sole necessary explanation for nature's apparent orderliness. No designing God was necessary to explain this order. Society and personal morality evolve. No fixed species means no fixed morality. Natural law theory, therefore, could no longer be taken seriously by the vast majority of humanists. A few Christians, Roman Catholic neo-scholastics and fundamentalist Norman Giesler, trained in a Jesuit university, still tried to defend a hybrid version of Christianity and natural law theory, always carefully undefined as right reason. No one in the academic world pays much attention. Natural law theory, a hybrid intellectual mule from the beginning, is now regarded as sterile. Only a few Christians vainly hope that it will eventually produce offspring. It is an ancient hope, one yet to be rewarded. Even among those who accept the validity of biblical law as a moral and legal standard, and there are few who do, the incentive to construct a biblical social theory fades if the view of biblical law does not include the historical sanctions that God has said are attached to cosmic law order. If these sanctions are denied, then eschatology is cut off from biblical ethics. Conversely, if an eschatology is adopted that denies the reality of an expanding Christian civilization over time, then the predictable historical sanctions of God's law order are implicitly or explicitly being denied. God's law, his predictable historical sanctions, and millennialism are intertwined in God's three institutional covenants, church, family, and state. Deny these covenantal connections, and you thereby deny the possibility of constructing a uniquely biblical social theory. There is no neutrality in life. He who denies the possibility of a uniquely biblical social theory must adopt a non-Christian social theory. He may do so either consciously or unconsciously, but he will choose something. There are no theoretical vacuums. There are no social vacuums. Jesus taught, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6.24 He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Matthew 12.30 This applies to social theory, too. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.